Hello, everybody. Welcome back to What's Important Now from the United States Border Patrol Academy. This is our podcast talking about things that matter to the United States Border Patrol, our men and women, uh, our families, and the people that we serve. So visiting us today, we have a chief patrol agent from one of the busiest sectors. If you've been watching the news, what's going on in South Texas, in fact, been going on for several years now, that is ground zero for uh, the border surge that we're seeing and, and the past several surges that we've seen. Uh, Chief Matt Hudak, good friend of mine and one of our great leaders in the organization. Chief, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Chief. Appreciate the uh, the opportunity to be here to, to visit with you today, to get to visit the Academy, catch up with some of the trainees, and, and talk to your audience. For those of you that don't know, it, it just shows how important uh, our trainees and, and uh, our workforce are to the leadership out in the field because we get so many of them coming through here and checking in on the trainees and spending their own time talking to them. They're very busy. I mean, you can imagine the the schedule of a chief out in the field, but to come in and spend their time when they could very well be doing other things to talk to the trainees, to answer questions, to visit with them, check in on them, make sure they're doing okay. Uh, you came up here from Laredo. How far of a, how far of a drive or a flight was that? Uh, it was a couple of flights, pretty much a, a whole day of travel to get out here, but uh, but I think it's worth it. And, you know, to your point, you know, when I look back, uh, you know, almost 23 years ago when I started in this organization, you know, you didn't get any real engagement like that until well after you you graduated from the academy. And I think, you know, we owe that to our people to engage with them a little bit sooner. So really bring them in this organization and start it from day one. That's that's our future. Well, you, you and I were talking about it, and it's just it's just one of those ways that the organization, our family, has evolved. <laughs> I didn't even know who my chief of the academy was. I, I never saw him until, I think, graduation. Right. Um, not to say that, you know, great chief, great uh, leader of the academy, but there wasn't that interaction at the time. That was just our culture. That's how things were. When we reported to our first duty stations, I think it was a rarity to even see the patrol agent in charge. Right. Yeah. The leadership was, uh, I I don't want to say aloof maybe wasn't the right word, but it just, there wasn't a connection, you know, with any of the leadership. And and I think, yeah, we have evolved as a family and as an organization. And I think the workforce now expects that a little bit more. They expect their leaders to be accessible, or at least at best, to be able to you know, see their leaders face to face. And and I think we need to, we need to do that, deliver it to them. And Laredo is one of those sectors that uh, pretty consistently gets new trainees through the academy, uh, right. constantly replenishing your ranks. It's one of the, one of the, the bigger sectors where trainees will start their career. It's actually a very, it's a great sector. As you know, I spent some time there myself yes, and uh, some of those stations are just uh, the things that they learn as quick as they learn are just uh, not to be underestimated. Oh, it's, it's a great opportunity, you know, to train any of those stations. You know, you get the experience, everything from the operations along the river, checkpoint, you know, brush, highway, uh, you know, from ATVs, horses, all of those things. So it's a great, great place for, you know, a trainee to start the career and really learn those foundational skills and then, you know, get the opportunity to take them to other sectors, to other borders and, and build past that. But it's a great place to start. So and just to give everybody an idea of just how busy uh, Laredo sector is. Let's talk about the the I thirty five checkpoint. What we refer to as Charlie twenty nine. Right. The number of vehicles, the volume of vehicles that pass through there uh, in a year is in the millions. Correct. So so right now we're seeing and we still have some trade restrictions and travel restrictions uh, on the border right now. So a lot of the uh, just recreational traffic is not coming across. But we're seeing now eleven to twelve thousand vehicles per day going through that checkpoint per day. Per day with a little over half of that being commercial tractor trailers. And that's slow compared to what it should be because of the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah, it's lower than what we would be expecting. I think when I was there, it was on the order of 3.4 million vehicles a year would go through. Is that just cargo? Uh, no, that, that's the vehicles altogether. Yeah. So, yeah, several million. We're, we're closer to 4 million now. And, uh, you know, when we look at it, even in terms of CBP's, uh, you know, structure, if if that checkpoint was a port of entry, it would be the fourth busiest in the country. And so that is one location of one station in the Laredo sector. In the sector, that's correct. So that gives you an idea of just how busy those men and women are. And oh, by the way, securing the border and uh, handling the surge that's coming across. Absolutely, and taking all of that at the same time and, and really not uh, not relenting on any of it. 
So the volume is kind of one of the things that describes the work of the Border Patrol. When we make arrests, usually it's it's on the order of dozens or, or more at a time, and and the narcotics that uh, that our men and women seize, we talk in tons. We don't talk in grams or ounces. So just the the, the volume can be overwhelming, you know. And so you have, I think, 170 miles of border. Actually, we have 136 miles. 136. Okay. Yeah. So of that 136, right now, how many apprehensions last year did Laredo have? Oh, last year we had a little over 50,000 last year. 50,000 arrests year. for the entire year. And the narcotics? Oh, we're well over 100,000 pounds. Yeah. And so this is just one sector. That's and, one sector. And so you have, you know, roughly 2,000 employees in, mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in Laredo. And you can imagine just on a 24-7 basis, it, that does not take into consideration the rescues. That doesn't take into consideration any of the other responses, the, the humanitarian efforts that we've, that we've been that's doing. Right. Uh, that's just the law enforcement efforts. And of those, you have a good population that were uh, criminal aliens. Criminal aliens, right. Or, wanted fugitives. Wanted fugitives coming across illegally. The narcotic smugglers, uh, sexual predators. That's something that is just a day in the life of a border patrol agent in South Texas, especially in Laredo. That, that's correct. Mm-hmm. You know, the, those those situations play out daily. I think uh, just rescues alone this fiscal year, starting October 1st, we're already at over 5,500 rescues so far this year. And that's everything from... People locked in a cargo container in a tractor trailer, uh, locked in a uh, tanker on a rail, uh, on a railroad car, uh, or, you know, actually rescuing them out of the Rio Grande or uh, with our rescue beacons out in the remote areas where they, you know, are, are about to succumb to the elements. That's a great type. So I, I don't think a lot of folks know those even exist. What are those? So the uh, we have two different types of, uh, of beacons out there now. We have some fixed ones. Uh, we have four of those. Uh, and then right now we're in the process of deploying a total of, uh, actually going to be a total of 14 of these uh, more portable uh, ones that are actually a small, uh, like a utility trailer. And it has about a 40-foot uh, tower that extends from it. And it has a placard that covers a couple of different languages with a button. And it's basically if you're in distress and you need help, push that button. Uh, and then that sends a radio signal to our communication center. That word is sent directly to the agents out in the field. And within a couple of minutes, they can respond and, and provide whatever aid is needed. And that's something that, that we, the Border Patrol, do on our own. That's correct. Yeah, nobody does that for us. That's that's our initiative. That's our agents uh, actually building those systems and putting them out there. Uh, Rio Grande Valley, uh, Laredo, Del Rio, and many other sectors have them. Uh, and right now, we're just we're deploying these new ones, these mobile and we've already had lives saved because of them just in the, the month or so that they've been out there. So we identify these areas. And, and if you've ever been to Laredo and to South Texas, the, the terrain out there, especially in the summer months, is just, it's not meant for people to be out in. That's correct. And it's very dangerous. We, we have people, even with, despite all of our efforts, that, that die every single right. year. And the smugglers don't care. The smugglers will leave them behind in a heartbeat. Well, and, and that's one of the very dangerous aspects of that scenario. So, you know, you have a, a guide that's leading, you know, a group of eight or 10 people through the brush. Uh, you know, somebody in that group just is tiring, dehydrated, can't keep up. You know, that, that smuggler doesn't wait around with them or call for help because they don't want to get caught. So they will literally leave them behind, take the rest of the group and push on. And what generally happens is, you know, several miles, hours down the road, we end up apprehending that group and somebody says, oh, hey, we, 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 we had to leave somebody behind. So then agents actually break away and start going into a life-saving mode. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, we don't always get to them in time. They're oftentimes already dead by the time we can find them. So that's if, tough. If they can get to these rescue beacons that, that our men and women put out there, they can activate it and get and we'll be we'll, we'll help them. We'll be there. Right, absolutely. That life-saving help, whether it's, uh, you know, regular agents with water or our EMT, paramedics, Borstar, you know, they'll be there uh, relatively quickly. And because of that system, we know exactly where they are. We don't have to go looking for them. You know, nine one, we do get a lot of 911 calls for help from, you know, groups that have gotten lost and are out of water. But then it's really trying to find a needle in a very big haystack. These beacons, we know exactly where they are. And so when we say it is a dangerous <clears throat> journey for anybody entering the country illegally, we mean it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've already had, uh, uh, I think as of uh, Monday, 49 deaths already this year. So it's it's a it's a perilous journey. And for many people, it's a deadly journey. Uh, you know, I know uh, we just did a uh, interview set last week with CNN talking about the beacons and, and the situation. And 
you know, the medical examiner there in Webb County covers several counties. And, you know, she's even talking about just, you know, they, they can't keep up with the volume of fatalities along the border. It's, it's dangerous. So let's just walk through the journey for a second. I used to say you know, from the moment they leave their door at wherever their uh, their home is, they're in peril. It, the journey going through their country, through mm-hmm. Mexico, a lot of times they're in the hands of smugglers from the, from the outset. Correct. And there's deviations along the way. There's things that can happen even before they get to our border. So the peril doesn't start right. when they hit the Rio Grande or they hit the U.S. The international border. The river itself is dangerous. Mm-hmm. We have people that drown in it uh, all the time. If they make it, a lot of times it takes weeks to get just to our border, and they can be crossing through the desert even before in, in Mexico. When they get to the border, they make it across, they're still in danger. They, they're they still in the hands of the smugglers, and they're treated as a product, as a commodity. That's correct. Yeah. They change hands. Cargo and a commodity. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so if, if I can for a minute or two, there, there's uh, there's a lot more to that story than and I think most people generally you know realize. And you're you're spot on. That moment that they actually step foot out of their home, they start this journey. They're in danger. They are generally contracting in in a way with criminal organizations uh, in the country that they start from, all the way through the the intermediate countries until they get to the border. So you know they're being moved. They're putting their lives, their kids' lives into the hands of clearly people that are criminals and criminal organizations. And they don't look at them as people, you know, it is cargo, it's a commodity. So that risk happens all the way through that cycle to the border. You know, they're dealing with criminal organizations. Uh, What we have seen become more prevalent now is that they actually get exploited while they're through that process. So you're putting themselves in the hands of criminals, but then they're actually being held prisoner by them. And like, well, you know, the price just went up another thousand dollars. If you want to move on now, you got to pay me. I know you already paid the rest of the organization, but now you got to pay me. So they're getting extorted for more money. And then you just have the physical dangers, like you said, of of getting across the Rio Grande. And, you know, we do see a high number of drownings all along the entire Rio Grande border. Uh, It's it looks like a very peaceful area, but that, that river can be very dangerous. So you have those environmental constraints. And then once they do get across the border, sometimes it's a uh, it's an effort to quickly get them to a stash house. And, you know, we've we've interdicted a huge number of stash houses, over 6000, you know, aliens from stash houses, uh, you know, in in Laredo. It's it's, it's a huge number. Explain to everybody what a stash house is. So a, a stash house is generally it's a house, apartment, sometimes hotels. But it's a location where the smuggling organizations will take the take the migrants after they make it across the river into the U.S., they'll bring them to this location and they'll hold them there until they can arrange the transportation to bring them farther north. Sounds a lot like a warehouse to me. Well, many of these are because we've seen uh, houses, even in, in, you know, nice neighborhoods that you wouldn't expect 50, 60, 100 people inside a two, maybe three bedroom house. Uh, And that's in the middle of COVID. Mm -hmm. So very dangerous situations there. So, and we do see play out in those is that same thing that now it's a different part of that organization that's holding them at the stash house and they're charging them for every day that they're at the stash house. Oh, would you like to eat? Okay. That's going to cost you. And And we're not talking five-star accommodations either. No, these, these are absolutely, you know, like I said, 20, 30 people in, in one bedroom. It's, it's absolutely, you know, horrible, just you know, unsanitary, dangerous conditions. Sometimes no running water. Sometimes the uh, the restroom facilities aren't there. They're in a corner of a room. Sometimes the air conditioner may not work. Sometimes they're right. So, kept... so we do see those where you know they'll they'll rent a house, but you know they don't want to be traced to the utilities or anything. So yeah, there's no water. There's no air conditioning. Um, you know, buckets to use for the restroom, or you know they tell them to go outside. I mean, they're they're horrendous conditions, but they're actually being held captive at that point and then them and their families are being extorted to pay more money and more than that we've even seen cases where certain assaults take place in those locations uh, sexual assaults uh, or just outright uh, battery that uh... yeah so so this year you know we, we've seen that that whole spectrum uh, sexual assaults against uh, you know uh, female migrants that are being uh, transported held at the stash houses uh, we've had firearms used by uh, the caretakers, the smugglers uh, on the some of the migrants that didn't want to pay or maybe make an example of one to uh, keep the drive, in line. to drive the other ones to to pay those fees. 
So yeah, that, that most definitely does happen. And, and we also had one case where uh, there's actually a neighbor called because they thought a fight was happening at the, 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 the house. The local PD, Laredo PD, gets there and it turns out it's actually one of the smugglers beating on one of the aliens uh, with a pipe. And, of course, realized there was a lot more going on than just two people having a, yeah. a fight. And But, yeah, you're exactly right. It's a continuation of a very bad series of events. And so they make it through the stash house. They may get, at that point, put in the back of a tractor trailer Correct. or in a, a van, and they're moved from another this location to another location. That's right. So then that chain, just uh, another link of it, they leave that stash house. Uh, they'll usually get put into a couple at a time into vehicles. And like we see with the tractor trailers, they'll park the tractor trailer in a, an area they think is not going to get noticed. And you'll have multiple vehicles come in, uh, drop off the migrants. They'll tell them to get in the truck. They, don't, they didn't know probably that they were going to be getting in a truck. They don't know how long they're going to be in there. They don't have, you know, water and, and things with them. And, you know, that creates a dangerous situation. And we've had well over 100 people in the back of a, a tractor trailer in temps that are, you know, well over 100, 110 degrees now, especially as we're getting to the summertime. And you have to imagine, if, I mean, if, if you live in communities that where the, the temperatures in the summertime are in the triple digits and you kind of have a sense of it, imagine being in your car with the windows rolled up and, and locked and, and staying there. Not for minutes, hours, Correct. hours and hours and hours. And you can't get out even if you wanted to. You're locked in. Exactly. So that, that's a point I think a lot of people don't realize. It's not just that if they want to leave, they can just open the door. You know, the smugglers lock them in there. So it looks like a regular cargo truck with either a padlock or actual seal, uh, cargo seals on there to make it look legitimate. So, yeah, they have absolutely no means to get out. Uh, so they are trapped in there. And, and again, we've got... Even, you know, you take a 53-foot tractor trailer, but you put 100 people in there, 100-plus degree temperatures, no water, no ventilation. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty bleak situation when we get to those. And they may go through multiple stash houses. It's not like they go to one and you're done. Could, yeah, absolutely. That's, this could be, you know, anywhere from a couple of days to get through that process, or we see it where it's a week as they get moved around. Uh, and then, you know, they're getting handed off from one set of smugglers to another, so that extortion cycle just kind of starts over again because it's somebody new to victimize them. And so let's say they make it through all of that. So by this point, they've probably been traveling for weeks, if not longer. Right. And they may make it to their destination. They don't just get turned loose necessarily. They could be forced into uh, forced well, labor. Well, exactly. So we look at that, that first aspect of them being kind of a, a willing participant in the smuggling. We call that the human smuggling process, right? It, it takes a turn and turns into human trafficking when the, the voluntary action of the migrant, when that voluntary turns into, I don't have a choice, I'm, I'm trapped. So that's what we see a lot because of all these extra fees that these organizations add. By the time they get to a destination city, they're now in debt several thousand dollars to the smuggling organization. So they actually will tell them where they're going to live and they won't get paid for the work that they're doing. The organization there that they've really been handed off to, they're the ones that are gonna be making the money from the work that they're doing and maybe give them a small uh, stipend, but usually they're taking that money because it's, quote, paying off their debt. Uh, so they have no means to go anywhere else. They don't have the contacts. You know, they threaten them of, hey, we're gonna turn you in if you, know, if you try to get away. So what was a migrant that was paying somebody to smuggle them now becomes the victim of, of human trafficking. trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. And the job that they're doing, they, they don't necessarily get paid a, a fair wage. Correct. And so it may take them a long time to work that off. And in some cases, the job that they be asked to do is, uh, is illegal. They could be put into prostitution. So you'd see that, you know, very, very often, particularly with the, the female migrants, that's, that's how they get uh, brought into that trafficking cycle. And, and then that organization is charging them for rent. Right. And is charging them for all that while they're there. So that's what's coming out of their wages. So, yeah, the indentured servitude really becomes a an, an never ending cycle that they just can't get their way out of. So what starts as a you know very optimistic American dream opportunity really turns into 
you know, a horrific case of, of human trafficking and entrapment. It's it's terrible. And so that and we see it at all points along the way, us and our law enforcement partners, mm-hmm. HSI, you know, FBI, everybody that and, and local police departments that come across right. along the way. Yeah. And so when we say it's dangerous, that's what's in our mind when we're talking about it. It's not that we uh, that we don't want to see uh, people get the American dream to come into the country and have the opportunities. It's that when they go that route, when they enter between the ports of entry, when they enter illegally, that's right through the, the criminal enterprise. These are the things that they're subject to, and we have seen it at every point along the way, and we've seen the suffering that it causes. That can't help but pull at a person's heartstrings, and so that's a plea that we make when we tell people not to make that journey. Yeah, it's, it's a very sincere and heartfelt plea because, you know, you, you and I both, we have seen, you know, the tragic end of, you know, uh, you know, a migrant that can't make that journey and dies, you know, in the desert or in the brush. You know, we've seen, you know, the, the horrific conditions in the stash houses. You know, we've seen cases where, you know, migrants have died during the over-the-road smuggling events. Uh, you know, we, we've had several recently where, you know, trying to board a train, they lose a leg, lose an arm. Uh, and and I, I don't think if you ask them at the beginning, is it worth that? You know, they, they would say no. But it's, you know, not understanding those risks. So when we say it's a dangerous journey, there's so many layers to that danger that unfortunately I think just they don't realize until it really becomes too late and they have no way out of it. And now let's take all that we've talked about. And instead of an adult, it's a tender age child that's making that journey by themselves in the hands of a smuggler. Yeah. And we know that they too will be put into those similar conditions along the way. We come across these, uh, these unaccompanied children. They, they're in our custody until they can go into ORR, right, ORR. Uh, and be placed with a, with a, a sponsor mm-hmm. family. Right. We can't just kick those folks out the door. We can't just tell those kids, hey, you're on your own. It's been 12 hours. Uh, see you later. That's right. We have to hang on to them until somebody can take them. That's right. By, by law, we are required to hold on to them until we can, you know, for, for those uh, unaccompanied children, you know, by law, we have to turn them over to HHS ORR. So we are limited by how quickly they can manage that process. So, you know, earlier this spring where we saw, you know, the situations in the Rio Grande Valley and other places of just these huge numbers of unaccompanied children in custody, it was because there was so much pressure on that system from the back end that we were stuck holding people because none of these other agencies could keep up with that flow. And of course, you know, we end up uh, carrying the brunt of that load so, you know, by law, we have 72 hours to turn them over. Well, you know, that, that agency was never in a position to be able to maintain that flow. And that's an important point. So the entire system, we're, we're the start of that system. Absolutely. And all throughout, whether it's a, a ICE ERO or whether it's HHS ORR or sponsor families down the road or even the immigration courts, there's only so much capacity that that system, that chain has. Right. And when the flow or the events overwhelm that system, Something's got to give. And because we are the front end of the system and we're actually the only ones that cannot say, no, we can't. That's correct. They end up building up, or they have in the past, built up in our custody. And that's where you started seeing some of those uh, situations where we had a lot more people being held for longer than they needed to be held. Or than, than, than we ever wanted to. But really, like you said, yeah, we have no choice in it. And, and the, the position in that pipeline where our organization is, is, like you said, at the very beginning. So as we are responsive to whatever we're interdicting out there. So if it's 5,000 people a day coming across the border, that's what we are going to be intercepting, apprehending. So that could be a very large, you know, uh, water main that we're, you know, in terms of volume that we're dealing with. Well, all these other organizations may be limited to a garden hose amount of volume that they can handle. So that's what ends up happening. We have just this huge amount of, of population that builds up because these other organizations, and you name them, you know, there's, it's, everybody is in that same situation. And it's not, a, it's not a lack of willingness on their part. It's just that's all they can handle. It's just the reality, yeah. and it's a combination of budget and just capacity that they have within their organization. So what you see now where HHS has, uh, you know, put these temporary facilities on some Army posts, uh, other things, is really just their response to try to increase that capacity to handle that inflow. Much so, the same things that we did in the past. Absolutely. Is that that same use of facilities just because you need extra space to, and you know, most of us are parents, 
You know, we have kids. So Mm -hmm. when you see a kid in that situation, you can't help but feel, you know, just the the tragedy of it. So we as an organization want to do everything that we can to take care of that child, take care of them the the way we would want somebody to take care of our child. Uh, So that's that's difficult. But that's why, you know, we need the space to be able to do it and why, you know, we've had to expand some of these tent facilities just just to have space to try to do it right. And the part that needs to be said and, and can't be forgotten is what we want to be out there doing is border security work. We want to be stopping bad people and bad things from coming in. We can't turn a blind eye to the migrant surge for humanitarian or economic reasons. We have to address that when it's right in front of us. But that has the the symptom or side effect of keeping us from engaging in the border security mission. Well, that's it. And, and day to day, that's what keeps me keeps me up is, you know, our mission is a national security mission. Our job is to be out there stopping any threat coming at us between the ports of entry. Now, reality is when it comes to people, we don't know they're a threat until we know who they are. So immigration really isn't our primary mission, but it's just something that we have to go out and do every day to be able to identify, you know, literally thousands of people that we may be encountering in any given day. And by doing that process, using the technology, we do intercept, like just we had, uh, I think we just did a tweet last night of within 24 hours, we had uh, one person with a warrant for um, premeditated murder, uh, an active warrant for that, another one with a a warrant for uh, aggravated sexual assault of a minor. And those are just, like Dick said earlier, just daily examples of the things. But we can't identify those people until we stop and identify everybody. everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. So we end up having to do that. And and it's frustrating for us because we know organizations, criminal organizations, are going to capitalize on that that chaos as as they see it. So if they can push, you know, a thousand people through an area per day, they know the agents are going to have to be out there to deal with them. That's going to take up agent manpower in the back end to detain them and care for them. Well, that's the opportunity to try to get smuggling loads of narcotics north to smuggle weapons, currency and ammunition into Mexico or, you know, for ones that really have a criminal history that we definitely don't want coming into the country. That opens up the opportunity to them. So so for me, and I think as an organization, that's really where our concern falls is what's happening while we are having to stay focused and, and really dedicate so much resources to the human side of it. And speaking of those resources that have to be dedicated, I want to talk, we talked about this earlier this morning, mm-hmm. kind of take everybody through the coordination and the effort that it takes when we deal with hundreds of thousands of arrests across the southwest border in a year. So you know that there's uh, you know, there's 20 operational areas of responsibility, 20 operational sectors that divide up this country for the Border Patrol, and nine of them are along the southwest border. Sure. And so in the South Texas area, we basically have three. We have the Rio Grande Valley, we have Laredo, and we have Del Rio. Rio. And these are not kingdoms that operate in a stovepipe. This is, we are all one big U.S. Border Patrol, and so we we work together. And so if a sector is very busy, they may send uh, detailed personnel from other sectors to augment that workforce over there and help out. But also, and this is where you find yourself right now, helping with the, the movement and the, and the processing of the detainees once they're in our custody. That's right. So if uh, Rio Grande Valley is extremely busy and Laredo can afford to provide the assistance, some of those detainees may be put over into Laredo for processing uh, to alleviate some of that stress. That's right. Talk a little bit about what you're going through right now and what that entails uh, from the different sectors to make that happen. So we kind of look at that, it's it's kind of like a load sharing or, or load balancing. So one of the challenges that I've got in, in Laredo is we don't have the the family units uh, that, like we see in RGV and uh, many in Del Rio, that come across the river looking for an agent to, to At least not them. right now. Not right now, right. So everybody is being run by a smuggling organization, so everything is something we have to go after. But fortunately, we're not seeing the same volume that our neighboring sectors are. So, you know, yes, we absolutely, we do work together. So myself and the the chiefs to my left and right, you know, we communicate all the time. So, you know, we spent several months supporting the Rio Grande Valley with taking family units that they uh, apprehended there, bringing them to Laredo so that our agents could help with the the processing. Uh, We were supporting the Del Rio sector with doing some of that as well. And that's just how this organization in, 
you know, we we kind of you know refer to it. It's it's the U.S. Border Patrol. It's not Laredo sector or the Rio Grande Valley sector or you know our northern border sectors as well. We're all in this together. So there's a lot of coordination, and you know it's it's challenging too because each demographic set, each population has its own set of requirements. So we talked about you know the children and unaccompanied children. There's very descript, very set standards that we have to meet, uh, that we have to maintain. So we have to balance that through the process. And if we have a higher number of unaccompanied children, that's less space, less resources that I can use for family units or for single adults. So if, indeed, to, for everybody's benefit before you continue, so you have a, a holding facility and you can't put adult males with minor females together. You can't put family units together with single adult right. males. They have to be kept separate under a very strict set of guidelines. Absolutely. And so that makes the required space and manpower grow exponentially. Well, it does. So we can look at maybe, you know, one of our larger stations that maybe we have the capacity to hold 150 detainees. Well, that's under ideal conditions with, you know, an entirely single adult male population, which is frankly, what the stations were designed for. That was the model. That's how they were. Back in the day. That's how they were designed. So now when you have family units, yes, those standards all dictate, you know, how much space they need to have. And we can't put families in the same detention area as single adults. Nor so, would we want to. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, and then you add uh, some, you know, one unaccompanied child shuts down an entire, you know, area because we have to dedicate that for, for that child. So, that plays out across that whole processing area. So in the end, what may have capacity for 150 may actually turn out that we can have 30 people in that facility. Because each child needs to have his dedicated space. Space. And you and can't, you, we don't mix those populations. Absolutely. So. so that adds a whole other level of complexity to the issue that I don't think a lot of folks would know about. That's right. And, and it's it's a lot more complicated than just the you know, just moving the sheer number of people because just the number of people is 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 a challenge enough. But yeah, it's all the nuances of what are their particular classification, that population, that demographic uh, adds a whole set of complicating factors to that. Plus, we also have to marry it up with what's ORR's intake capacity in their process. Where can they take, you know, children from for uh, ICE ERO, where are they able to do the intake of single adults? Well, so that has to play into the decision-making of our station commanders and, and our sector team of where do we put different populations so that we can kind of be better prepared to move through that process. And sometimes it's happened, and I know it's happened with you and it happened with me, The you may have, make up something, five family units that are causing that very problem that you just described that you need taken off of your hand so that you can open up that capacity, that right. holding capacity, but ORR may not be able to take them. And you you don't care if they can take single adult males right now, what you need are these family units taken, but the system cannot take them. So you're stuck in this situation until they can deal with it. Meanwhile, you have more single adult right, males. Right, exactly. That, that flow doesn't stop. And, you know, that's what makes it challenging. I, I think as an organization, we're very adaptable. And if Today, we're apprehending unaccompanied children, and tomorrow, we're apprehending family units. We adjust, and it's just how we operate. But that's very problematic for everybody down the process from us. So, like with that, so today, it may be that we need ORR taking unaccompanied children. So, it takes a day or two to get that process going. Well, by the time they take those kids, they have that process going. Well, now, we're saturated with family units. And ERO needs a day or two to get up to speed to be able to deal with them. So we can adapt to it quickly, but, you know, sometimes those other processes are a little slower in, in, in adapting just by the nature of. And that extends to transport as well. Absolutely. Not just in the in the uh, holding centers, but also when they're being transported by bus or by van from point A to point B. Again, we're not going to throw kids in with strangers that are single adults and, and have them uh, mixing and mingling. They have to be transported separate conditions. Of Absolutely. So that the, the policies that we have cover it from the time of apprehension all the way to the time that we hand them off to somebody else. And yeah, very descriptive of who we can transport together. And sometimes like that, it's, you know, a few people, but it takes multiple vehicles just because we have to, you know, separate those populations differently. So to paint the picture, and let's create a scenario for everybody sure. to, to 
So you ha- you're the patrol agent in charge of a large station, a busy station, mm-hmm. and you are right now experiencing a surge of family units that are coming across. You also have a border security mission. You're still catching single adults that are coming across. Uh, you're still getting cases. And so in that holding center, you may have family units requiring uh, attention and being treated a certain way. You may have single adults that are uh, requiring treatment a certain way. You may have a smuggling case that requires all the witnesses be separated and you're uh, interviewing the principal. You may have a narcotics case where you need to store the narcotics. You may have the the consulate from Mexico that may need to talk to some of their, their folks. You have to dedicate space to that. Some of these people are from Central and South America. Some are from Mexico. How they are processed is completely different. Mm-hmm. Some will have voluntary returns. Some will have NTAs. Some will actually be prosecuted. Right. Starting to get the picture for just. Yeah. And then you add in there some criminal aliens, somebody with, you know, a warrant for premeditated murder, not the person that we're going to put in the uh, in a regular detention area with other people. So so that adds some some constraints to it. And then. You know, also the challenge of, you know, not everybody that we arrest is from Mexico or Central America. Mm-hmm. So you get people that speak, you know, languages that are not you know, Spanish, not Spanish or English. <laughs> right. So then, you know, it's the, the work that's involved with, you know, just caring for and processing, you know, them. All that happens every day, every day. And it's just a constant uh, it's just a constant chatter that you're dealing with of managing all of those. And and the good thing is, like I said, as an organization, we work together on that. So. Like for me within my sector, you know, when, when we get that pressure on the system, then we can actually look at in the different stations will step up and, okay, we'll take care of the family units here. Okay, we'll have the unaccompanied children and, and we can kind of manage that flow a little bit better to a point. Yeah, but that, there's always limits. and There's so, always limits. So it's understandable when you start to see our men and women get a sense of frustration or, or, or being stressed because the... Scenario we just described, as I said, is every single day, and not at one station, but at most of the stations along the southwest border yeah. in particular. Yeah, and, and I would say now even extend that to the northern border. The, the, the volume of arrests aren't there at the northern border, but like you said earlier, there's, there's support coming to the southwest border from all across the country. So, you know, whether, you know, if you're in Laredo sector, Rio Grande Valley, you're, you're dealing with it every day. But if you're in some of these northern border sectors, and I know we have agents you know, with us from Buffalo, Holton, uh, other sectors on the northern border, you know, they're feeling it because, right, those agents are down here away from home. working it away from home. Plus, you know, their brothers and sisters that are back up there working, you know, they're losing some of that help because it's down here with us. So organizationally, I, I, you may not be on the southern border, but it is impacting, you know, this entire organization. That's a great point. And our border security mission. Absolutely. Because there's still threats on the on the northern border. There's still threats on the coastal. Absolutely. All the way around. Yeah. And whenever you're short of manpower, then uh, then that that mission suffers. Absolutely. And, you know, criminals, uh, I I don't think, you know, to be a successful criminal, you let an opportunity pass you. Right. So (laughs) I think that's you know, you'll see that happening. And and we know that's happening. We see that where, you know, we get uh, inundated with a couple of groups of migrants and then, you know, we obviously are looking for that. So at the same time, that's happening will detect a narcotics load that's trying to be moved 10 miles upriver. And, and just because we know that is going to, that situation is going to be exploited. So I want to add another level of complexity to it uh, because it's very much your reality and it's Chief Hastings' reality in our Rio Grande Valley and Chief Skiros in Del Rio and pretty much everywhere along the southwest border. Chief Chavez was just here from El Paso. Also, we are a government organization and so we are transparent to the people that we serve, and specifically members of Congress. So while all of that is going on, we also are, we have media visit, we have congressional delegations that come visit, we have NGO groups, non-government organizations right. that we're constantly, we're, we're actively involved in our communities. You mentioned Laredo. I want to make clear for everybody, and I think you'll agree, Laredo's a great city. It's a very oh, great absolutely. community. Awesome community. There's, there's bad things that are happening along the border that does not define that community. Mm-hmm. And I think they would want us to make sure that we put that out there. No, absolutely. For a city of, uh, you know, roughly 250,000 people, it's a quarter million. Uh, it's actually one of the safest, you know, cities in, in, in Texas. And I think certainly along the south southwest border, uh, but it doesn't happen by accident. It's mm-hmm. it's a lot of teamwork that, that goes into that, but you're right. But that adds to, at the sector level, all of these things are taking place while that entire scenario is taking yeah. place. Absolutely. And, and we're committed to you know, I, I'm very proud of the work that our agents do 
uh, you know, everything that we do from our social media side to our uh, more conventional media side is is sharing that information. You know, there's no there's nothing there that we're you know trying to hide. It's it's actually going out of our way to try to be transparent about what's happening because you know the the truth doesn't have an agenda. It is no. it is the reality. So you know, sharing that, getting that out there, so our agents know people understand or at least can see what they're dealing with day to day, but also for the community, you know, uh, it's, it's good for them to know what are some of the challenges, what are the things that, that we're seeing, and like in a city like Laredo, to see what, you know, us working together with the Laredo Police Department, Webb County, Texas DPS, all the federal agencies, we're, we're all working together to keep that community safe. Great partners. Awesome partners mm-hmm. and, and the great partnership. And, and I think that is why, you know, Laredo is in, in such great shape and uh, you know, why the trade is so vibrant there because it is a very safe and, and, and very prosperous city. And it's, and I know I've said this and you have too, a safe and secure border is beneficial to everybody on both sides of the border. Yes. especially. And I think Laredo is a great example of that because both sides of the border are so dependent on the economic aspect, the trade and the, and the tourism, that when you start having bad things happen along the border, it gets in the way of that. Yeah, and I think most people that you get even a short distance away from uh, from the border. So, so Laredo to San Antonio is about two and a half hours. I think you get that far, you you lose that sense of the the, the relationship along the border. And you know that the city of Laredo is as big as it is because of that trade, because of that cross border commerce, and, and anything that threatens that or threatens the safety along that whole stretch of border impacts both communities. Because if the economic drive for the trade is not or the organizations that can support that trade are not in place on our side of the border, then there's no trade coming into Nuevo Laredo. And that's a huge part of their economy as well. And, you know, talk about the economics of it. Here's a, an angle that people don't often look at as well. When we look at the fees that the migrants are paying in terms of smuggling fees to these organizations, you know, if, if we put a kind of general cost of about $8,000 per person, and let's just say in the you know month of May, for example, you know, we apprehended a little over 1,000 people. So that's, that's nearly $90 million that's going into that criminal organization. And, and when I talk to our locals, when I talk to some of our community members, you know, that's not money that's going into the local communities. Yeah, yeah. that's not going into the credit unions that are helping your neighbors get mortgages. That is money that's going directly back across the border to pay for the weapons, to pay for the ammunition, to pay the the uh, you know the the organizations that do the extortion activities that may be used to to kill police officers in Mexico and and really to subjugate the communities on the other side mm-hmm. of the border. So so that money that's being made right now on the border that is directly going back to compounding all of the problems that are creating you know, the pushes that we're seeing now. And you touched on, you know, the other mission of CBP that, you know, Border Patrol, we're the law enforcement arm, and we predominantly are in the border security business. Our brothers and sisters in blue Mm -hmm. that work at the ports of entry, the office of field operations, they are also responsible for facilitating lawful trade and travel, legitimate trade and travel that is very much uh, important to both countries. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that speaks to the, the quality of this organization, that we have a very mission-capable enforcement arm out there between the ports of entry, stopping just a, a huge array of threats, while at the same time, our organization also facilitates all the legitimate trade and travel of, you know, vacationers, family members going back across the border. And I think as an organization, we do we do that extremely well, I think, you know, better than anybody else could. It's It's phenomenal to see that. Uh, but it's also, you know, going back to the point earlier about the migrants that put themselves in this smuggling uh, risk and all the dangers that go with it. I think all of us, you know, we're very pro-immigration. You know, having a robust immigration process, the process for naturalization for immigrants, yep. you know, is something this country was founded on. And, I think, and we need it. And we need it, right. But I, I think it goes to doing it the right way versus the wrong way. And really, when they make that choice to go it the wrong way, that's where all these risks and dangers uh, come up. So that's, again, you know, where, you know, as an organization, CBP, we support that, you know, doing it the right way. We, we are the ones that welcome those people when they come to the country. That's such a great point. It's it, to not let the border security discussion be conflated to 
illegal immigration That's or right. the, the the fact that we enforce immigration law uh, be translated into we're not supportive of immigration. I think most of us have very close ties in some form or fashion mm-hmm. with uh, immigrants that have come into this country. Yes. Yeah. And in, in families, I think this, you know, we all recognize that's how this country, you know, was, was founded of migrants coming from other places. So, so I think there's an understanding of that, but it's, you know, over the centuries, the process of doing that has changed. And, you know, maybe what worked in the 1800s or the 1700s isn't, you know, with border security and border threats now, it's not going to work in the 21st century. So, you know, we need to evolve to that. Well said. Well said. I want to talk to everybody a little bit about you personally. Oh, okay. So, this is a, the easy part was you talking about the mission and what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, now, so now, now it gets, gets uncomfortable. Now okay. we can talk about you. So tell you a little bit about Mr. Matt Hudak, who, uh, I, you know, over the past 20 years or so, I've come to know as a friend and sure. somebody I respect immensely. So he began in the U.S. Border Patrol in 1997, November 97, class 356. 356. Do you know what question's coming next? <laughs> I, I can probably dread it, but the uh, the fit the fight, strength and might, three five six rules the night. You got it. That's Still remember your class chant. <laughs> Outstanding. So you started in Harlingen, and back then it was called the McAllen sector. Right. Today it's the Rio Grande Valley sector. Mm-hmm. So started right in the right in the middle of things from the very beginning. Uh, Operation Rio Grande. Now that was when uh, a lot of static positions were in play, trying to deter. That's right. It's kind of that first real change in our operational model in South Texas. And so that was. Uh, uh, a very different environment then, and you can see how the Border Patrol has changed uh, from that time to what it is today, yes, absolutely. just uh, dramatically. Became a supervisor in 2001 at the Douglas Station, so you went from one big sector to another over right. the Tucson sector, and Douglas was very busy back at, then. At the time, that was yeah. the ground zero at the time, yeah. I remember that well. And it says you you helped organize and execute the Border Patrol's lateral repatriation program to avoid deaths in Arizona. A little bit about what that lateral repatriation program Yeah, so so that was the, the first of its uh, kind in, in what it was. We were seeing just a dramatic increase in fatalities in the Arizona desert because of the, the higher numbers of incursions of crossings. So what we were doing is as the, the groups were being apprehended, the ones that we could, we were actually, instead of just returning them to Mexico right across the border to, to you know, try it again there in Arizona, we were actually... Uh, using airplanes to fly them to other sectors and repatriate them to Mexico through different areas uh, to basically kind of dissuade them from trying and putting their lives in danger there again in Tucson. Because the the deserts of Tucson, everything we described about the Laredo area of responsibility can be applied to Tucson. Absolutely. It's, you know, so I always joke about if you visited one of the southwest border sectors, you visited one sector, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're all different, but that's a pretty common theme. There's a lot of desolate areas, harsh condi- harsh conditions, and it's hot. <laughs> That's pretty well said. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I'm trying to think if there's any place that doesn't fit that criteria. Maybe San Diego. But yeah, yeah, that may be a little different. But even there, you know, not too far from the coast, you're you're back in the mountains in the desert. So you left Douglas in tw- in 2004, and That's you right. went to a headquarters, Washington D.C., and you you led the Enforcement and Technology Division. Now that's a an Information Technology Division. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And that's a uh, that's another aspect that kind of really helped out our processing capabilities and and uh, all that that entailed with our, our technology uh, of the day. Brief brief description about what you did there. Yeah, so that was a really exciting time to do that because we had you know just done the creation of CBP in two thousand three. So I got there you know roughly a year after that happened. So you know Border Patrol had you know kind of been doing things its way for you know many years up to that point. So. We just turned kind of into the 21st century, and really our technology was decades Subpar, yeah. decades behind that. So, so that was the mission I got from Chief Aguilar at the time was get us to current state. So, uh, you know, we had teams working on everything from radio communications to the mobile technology to even our uh, our land and network infrastructure, our computers, our technology for processing the biometrics for identification. You know, we had so many different projects going on just because they had it, it had never been a priority up to that point. So let me let me uh, for everybody that's listening, paint a picture because Matt's very humble about this. Imagine going from the analog old style CB radio kind of communication that wasn't encrypted to what we have now, the digital communications mm-hmm. that are much better in terms of, uh, you know, the areas they cover to the to the phones that we now use. And then going from a processing standpoint, literally filling out the 213s on triplicate carbon copy forms by hand 
to a robust database that actually tracks and we can run record checks and do biometric uh, data so much better. We are where we are today in no small part because of the efforts of you and your team with that EIT and, and headquarters. Yes, sir. Very, very, very proud of that. And, and like just the, the biometrics alone now that, you know, we can apprehend somebody and, you know, electronically put their fingers on there. And within a matter of seconds, we know if anybody has ever had contact with them before. Hard to imagine. It's just 25 years ago. It's not that long to be that far where we were just filling things out by hand and yeah. not really doing a lot of it, it's amazing. Like I said, I remember, you know, yeah, writing out the, the forms, you know, and, and and there was no way to really positively identify people. At worst case, if, you know, you actually would roll somebody's fingerprints and submit them, you were looking at, you know, a couple of weeks to get that return back. Mm. And, you know, now where we are. And so 2007, welcome to Laredo for the first time. Yes, sir. Assistant patrol agent in charge, which are now called deputy patrol agents in charge, but of the Catula station of the Laredo sector. Mm -hmm. So up there close to San Antonio, that's a plus. Yeah, it was a you know great area being right there on Interstate 35, uh, about you know roughly halfway between Laredo and San Antonio. So uh, a lot of uh, highway enforcement, a lot of working with our partner agencies, and a lot of that area, it's all ranch land, a uh, couple of railroad lines, mm -hmm. and the rest of it's all just ranch land. And then you were acting patrol agent in charge of the Laredo Sector Intelligence Unit, and in, uh, January of 2010, you became the PIC, the patrol agent in charge of the Laredo South Station. Now, that's a large station in Laredo Sector, one of the busiest between it and Laredo North, probably a toss-up. That's correct. Yeah. What did you think of that? That was your first foray into the large station. Yeah, so it was interesting. And, and even now, you know, Laredo South uh, really covers the urban area in Laredo that matches up to the urban area in Nuevo Laredo. So it continues to be our highest traffic, highest volume area in terms of arrests also of assaults uh, against our agents. So it's a, it's a very challenging operational area, but, you know, we had a great team. And, you know, I think, you know, that's something that, you know, where there's a challenge, that's where you want to be. And, you know, so I, I really enjoyed the opportunity of being there at the station. And then you kind of transitioned to help stand at the South Texas campaign, which right. really was a, a focused effort at targeting those that were responsible for the traffic that's coming across, whether narcotics, whether it be people, it was those transnational criminal organizations and our concerted effort to actually go after in partnership with all the other law enforcement entities of the, uh, in the area to really sure. take it to those those organizations. So you helped stand that up. Mm -hmm. You also were, I know, were the uh, division chief in Laredo sector and uh, and then finally decided to leave Laredo <laughs> and became the deputy chief of the Del Rio sector, spent there and spent some time there. And then you entered the ranks of the senior executive service and became chief of the Big Bend sector, used to be called Marfa sector. That's right. Which is between uh, Del Rio and El Paso mm -hmm. along the, the Big Bend National right. Forest, right? Spent some time there. And then with your background and subject matter expertise of the Laredo's AOR, they brought you back to assume command of Laredo sector where you are today. Yes, sir. So that was uh, July will be a year uh, back in Laredo. And you know, great being back with the team. And, and like you said, the community itself just is, is the bonus of, you know, the great partners and, and certainly being, you know, in South Texas uh, is, is, is good. And like that, like I said, you know, where there's a challenge, that's where, you know, we want to be. And, you know, uh, I, I wish we weren't having to deal with some of the challenges that we are now, but I'm happy to be part of, of the team that's doing it. So. And so it's, it's a very impressive career. And, and obviously you have devoted a lot of yourself to this mission and, and this green family of ours. Uh, any particular moment in that career that's a highlight for you that you look back on with more fondness than the rest? You know, it's uh, it's tough, you know, to, to look at it because yep. there, there are so many, you know, so many fun fun times and, and opportunities. I think I think the ones that I would say probably would be when, you know, whether it's through the STC or some of the things that we're doing now, when, when we get to really deliver a consequence or something that has a a, a, a much larger impact that gives you a lot of pride. Uh, I think the, like so, you talked about some of the technology stuff that we did, we're still, we're still seeing some of it mm -hmm. come to fruition today. That's, it's neat to be kind of at that part that got that process going. But I think the, the most proud moments all revolve around things that I've been able to do for our people, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's, uh, you know, when somebody's had a, 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 a you know, bad medical situation, uh, and, and, you know, I've been able to do something to help them with that uh, or, you know, even just the, the mentoring of people and seeing them succeed and, and, and the excitement they get when, you know, they have an opportunity that uh, that opens up for them. 
you know, those are the things that I think, you know, we as, as leaders take pride in. Uh, it's, it's really those things that you can do and, and you see the benefit it has for other people. That's, that's where the pride comes from. Hard to put a, a price tag or, or quantify that. It's, yeah, it, it, it is tough. And, you know, and we deal with the dark days, you know, uh, definitely have been those. You know, I've, I've lost one of my classmates. Uh, you know, I've seen us, uh, I've, you know, seen other agents lose their lives. Uh, that's, you know, th- those are the tough things, but there too, we get each other through that. And as a family, as a green family, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, there's, there's some pride there that we do help each other through it. But, uh, but all in all, like I said, the, the ones that really just that hit my heart the most are, uh, you know, like I said, doing some things to, to help agents in different scenarios. And then, you know, a year or two down the road, you know, I, I may not even recognize their face and maybe not even the name, but to have an agent come up and say, Hey chief, I don't know if you remember, but four years ago, this happened to me. You know, it was a real terrible time for my family. And, and you took the time, you did this, you talked to me, you helped me with this. And it's just, yeah. And you do it because you, you feel certain that if the roles were reversed, they would do it for you. Yeah. And it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So for those that are interested, they want, if they want to ask you and say, what's a secret or, or a trick to remember to help be successful in the career that helped you out the most, some words of wisdom or encouragement that you can give anybody that, uh, that is starting their career or looking for how do they advance or how do they achieve their goals? So I, I think the, 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 the probably cliche, but the best answer is just work hard. Uh, you know, we were talking to some trainees earlier this morning, one of the classes and, you know, talking to them about, you know, the privilege of wearing this uniform and, you know, I don't take it for granted, you know, mm-hmm. any day. So I'm working today to make sure I feel that I've earned it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if you, if that truly is something you believe that drives you to do good work every day, whether it's in the field, whether it's, you know, meetings that we're attending, decisions that we're making, it's, it's all of those different things. And it's really the work that you do today opens up the doors tomorrow. So, you know, if somebody, you know, one of our agents wants to, you know, be in, in the chair that I'm in one day, I think that's the best advice is do your best, you know, do good things today. And then that will help open up doors. It's not about, you know, trying to, trying to wedge the door open. It's doing good work each and every day and it gets those opportunities and that causes the doors to open absolutely it does and then you know that's what you know really i look everybody owns their own brand right you define who you are and if you do that well that's what other people well people are going to see it regardless Mm -hmm. right but you know if if you're doing the right things and you're working hard that's what people will recognize Uh, and, and again i think that's what helps open up those doors so that's a good segue into the the next question and we had the the honor first talk with that class this morning, which was eleven seventy three, and they're just getting started on their journey. And so, one of the first things we want to let them know is that motto, that guiding principle, those two words, honor first, that belongs to them now, mm-hmm. just like it belongs to each one of us, because that's the principles that we live by, right. wearing this uniform. Talk a little bit about what that means for you and what it has meant. So, you know, honor first, and, and, and I, th- I think, you know, for, for some of those trainees being, you know, literally day one to have the insight they already had, I think was pretty impressive. But to hear them say things about, you know, it's, yes, it's the integrity piece. I mean, that's, that's got to be the foundation. It's got to be built on integrity. But I, I look at it as it's having honor in everything that you do, whether that's on duty, off duty, the decisions I make as chief, uh, you know, the operational decisions, any of those things. It's something that can I stand there and say, this is an honorable decision. And can I expect other people to say, you know, know, there's honor in that. It's having honor in the things that we do and not doing things that bring dishonor. And I think when you enter this organization, you know, you're not only raising your right hand and taking that oath, but you are committing to that. that. That sense of honor and integrity is more important than what I feel. So it may be easier for me to do A, but the right thing to do is B. And no matter how much harder that is, I'm doing B because that's the honorable thing to do. So, you know, I, I tell people oftentimes it's about doing the right thing, not the easy thing, because oftentimes the right thing is not the easy way, but that's the way that it has to be. And in honor first, if you really understand that, it puts that first. So there is no other option. Very apropos for what we called what we are called on to do every single day. That's right, and and I look at it, you know, from the agents in the field. It's 
you know, uh, you know, later in the shift and another challenge comes up that you've got to respond to, you know, do you kind of shrug your shoulders and just, you know what, I, I'm, no, it's, there's a challenge. I'm, I'm going after it. Uh, the challenges that we deal with in the field, or even, you know, like we're talking about earlier with the, the numbers of migrants, it, it'd be surely be easier not to have to deal with that, but ignoring it's not an option. That's not who we are. No. And, and we're going to take that challenge head on. And not only are we going to take it on, we're going to drive through it and we're going to find a solution and we're going to find a solution that works today, but is also going to be better for us tomorrow because that's just what we do. Chief Matt Hudak, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chief. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you. And for everybody out there that, uh, that you know, wears this uniform or even the family members, those two words, honor first and what they mean to you, that's something that uh, requires a lot of thought. And it's a very personal thing. And it evolves over time. Mm-hmm. It's something that, uh, that your experience dictates that it may change for you, uh, what, the, what it means. But the important thing is it does guide your decisions and your judgment and every action that you do, both on and off duty. That's right. Food for thought for all of us as we advance through this great adventure that is the United States Border Patrol. That's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. We'll talk again soon. Honor first.